Hello, everyone. Welcome to the We Are Children's Division podcast. Uh, we have another great episode for you today uh, in our in our series of Meet Your Leadership uh, discussions. Uh, today, we have Felicia McKenzie and Brian West, who are our regional directors for our, our metro regions. Very excited about that. And of course, our, our communications guru and producer director is here with us today, Ashton Kiever. How are you, Ashton? I'm all right, Daryl. How are you? I am fine. Uh, I would like for you to know that we, we need to deal with truth and transparency here. So everybody, you need to know Ashton's not really all right. If we sound like we're in a can or something, it's because we're doing this remotely because I'm looking at Ashton right now on her couch because uh, <laughs> she took a she took a tumble uh, because of toys left in the floor. And she's got a it's a, your foot is in a boot as we're recording this today. Is that right? It is indeed. It is on the right foot, so there will be no driving for me for at least six weeks. Right. So she could not get a ride here into Jefferson City. But uh, Ashton, I just want you to know how much we all appreciate you and all the work you put into this, and uh, and how uh, we just could we could not literally could not do this without you. But we appreciate you, uh, you know, logging in today and and joining us here here in my office uh, here in Jefferson City. Although we do have uh, we do have. Felicia and Brian, how are you? How are you guys today? I'm doing good. I'm doing well. Oh, good. Well, well, we we just if, if we sound a little sluggish, it's because we just finished the um, we just finished our executive team meeting, uh, which is takes a lot of energy and a lot of thought. And uh, I I just want you to know that those uh, those have become really a, a highlight for me in our in our work. Just getting this group together and talking to these guys, it's just. I, I almost get excited. It's executive team meeting today. I'm so excited. I get to see these people and we get to talk about these things and it's really exciting. So uh, what we have done is we have asked, uh, this is part of us introducing to all of our team uh, who the leadership is here at the Children's Division. When I went out and did uh, the vision talks and I was talking with the people in our field, I found out how many people did not know each other and how many people did not you know, did not know, were not acquainted with, did not know the stories of the people who are in leadership here. And so this is an opportunity really to remedy that in a really profound and great way. And we're doing that here today. So we're gonna ask Felicia and Brian to tell us uh, their stories, what's happening in their circuit, uh, what's their vision for our work. And we're just gonna have a conversation. So thank you all for listening. I hope uh, I hope you listen to all these podcasts. I hope that you find value in them. I sure do. I go back and listen to them even though I was here uh, because I think there's a lot there's a lot to happen here. So uh, we'll begin with you, Felicia, because it's it's ladies first among us old fashioned kind of guys. So uh, so Ash, so Felicia, uh, how is it that uh, so so you're you're our regional director in in St. Louis, right? Yes, I am. All right. So uh, how did you get there? I mean, how did you get from your life? You know, you know, we were we were just picking on uh, on on Tiffany earlier because Tiffany said I wanted to be in children's vision since I was 13 years old. So you got to top that somehow. So how, how did you how did your career come about? Where did you go to school and how did you get here? Okay, I started off at uh, St. Louis Community College at Forest Park. I got an associate's degree in human services. I then went to the University of Missouri in St. Louis and got my bachelor's degree. And after that, it was a bachelor's degree in social work. And during that time, I did a project. We had to interview someone at a social service agency. So I chose children's division. And I interviewed someone that was over the family preservation program. There was a program that they used to have in the county and the city in St. Louis. And it kind of helped families stay together so kids didn't come into foster care. And so talking with that worker, she explained everything to me. She talked about the different programs. And she also gave me some brochures and her business card and said, you should come work for us when you graduate. So I was still in school and then someone came to one of my classes while I was at University of Missouri St. Louis, someone from CD and kind of talked about an internship. And so uh, you it was actually a paid internship. So I thought about that, I interviewed, and then part of that interview process was if you took the internship, you would have to give back. I think it was two years of employment. And I was like, well, I don't know if I want to work there for two years. So I declined to take the position. How many, how many years ago was that? 
24 years 24 ago. years ago all right so 24 years ago she was not sure about whether or not to do two years i want everybody to you yeah. can do the math here so i still applied when i graduated i still applied and i started in october 1998 and i've been here ever since i was also able to go to washington university of st louis while i was working with children's division to receive my master's degree which or children's division paid for and only had to give back a i think a year of service but I say all that to say, even though I was a little skeptical about working here in the beginning, I've been here for 24 years and I wouldn't change a thing, even if I had the opportunity to. This has been a great opportunity for me or just coworkers, the families I've worked with, I have had the opportunity to really grow over the years. So I think I made the best decision. It was either this or the Salvation Army was the other place I right. was work. And I definitely think I chose the correct place to come to. Yeah, you know what I noticed, Felicia, and I, I sense um, sort of a common a common thing between you and I is how St. Louis centric all this is. You know, yeah. it's like it's, it's it's you've been working you've been working for children's division, but you've also been working for the people of St. Louis yes. and 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 lifted up by St. Louis and and you know I I feel that way because you know I born at St. Louis University Hospital and then lived around there all my life and then you know you go to St. Louis University Law School and it it's so we're in those in those spaces and so you were you know we were the, the children's division office was not far from you know where I where I was in school where I was sitting there we were sitting in the same spaces and we didn't know it you yes. know that's that's really a that's really a, a great thing. So you, when you came to work at Children's Division, uh, what kind of things were you doing when you came to work? When I first started, I started off as a alternative care worker and FCS, so we had a mixed caseload. So I did that for about maybe three years that I was investigator for about four years, then a children's service specialist, a program manager, TDM for team decision maker facilitator, then I went to a field support manager. And then in November, I became the regional director. So I've served in many roles while I've been at Children's Division. And I've had the opportunity to work with great people, not just at Children's Division, but also in the community, whether it's been the hospitals, the court systems, the school district, just you know, all of the community agencies in St. Louis. Well, and you've got the history to do it, right? You've you've been in those spaces, you know who the players are, you've you've uh you're familiar with with the landscape, yes. I think in a way that not everybody could be. And that's, yes. that's really, really a powerful thing. One thing I noticed about your experience is there's a whole lot of prevention in there. You know, you were doing family-centered service work. You were a team decision-making, uh, you know, facilitator for, I think you told us earlier, three years, right? Yeah, it was actually five years. Five years. <laughs> five okay, years. so you lost those two years. Yes. Those were the two years. The payback years. <laughs> that's right, Brian. <laughs> those were the years that you thought, well, I don't know if I want to give those two years. So, right. yeah, those were the extras. So, uh, so tell us about your experience with that. I mean, because we've we're shifting in a serious way toward prevention and ha you having done so much, I think you bring an interesting perspective to that. What was your experience like in doing that prevention work? In prevention, my prevention work actually started when I first started when I had when I was a family center service worker, because the cases that I had, you were really able to work with those families. There was no court involvement. You were able to really engage them give them resources, help them do things that would keep those kids in the home. And so that was my first take on it. But even when I was an investigator, I think I really learned a lot in that area too, as far as um, prevention work, because I didn't have many cases where kids came into foster care. I tried to exhaust our resources. I made sure first of all that the kids were safe, but I tried to exhaust our resources to make sure that those kids could stay safe in their community, in their home with their parents. I remember getting a uh, investigation. I think it was something in regards to the kids being left unattended outside. It was in Ferguson. So the police officer and I, we went to the home. Mom was at work and she was due to be out of work, maybe in a couple of hours or so. But, you know, the officer looked at me. I mean, nothing was really wrong with the home outside of the family was preparing to move to a new location. So some of the things was packed up in boxes. And the officer was like, what do you want to do? I was like, well, these kids don't need to come in and care. They didn't have any food in the home. So the officer went and got McDonald's for the kids. And I sat there and supervised and helped them kind of put the house in some type of order. And mom came home afterwards and the officer was basically saying, now, if you come out and talk to mom tomorrow, because it's pretty late and can get her some services, 
you know, everything will be okay. And I made sure I went out the next day, did assessment with mom and got resources that will help her. Because if things had went differently, those kids would have ended up in care. And those kids did not need to be in care. So sometimes it just takes that extra amount of time to really work with families, start where families are at and see what is it that you need. Tell me about your family. You can't go into the home assuming what a family needs. You have to really or ask them what they need and be transparent and honest with them if you expect them to work with you. Yeah, and some, you know, hitting a drive-through and, and and bringing some chicken nuggets yeah. is certainly certainly a lot less traumatic on a child than, uh, hey, let me pick you up and take you to a place you don't recognize, right? Yes. So and even with the TDM, the team decision-making process, that was a great opportunity to uh, meet with the families or let them tell us what they need. Let them be a part of that decision-making because if you want them to follow any plans, they have to be the leader of that plan. They have to be able to make decisions. So I think that was really a great practice that we had because, again, we were keeping families together and not bringing children into foster care. Well, and you were exploring with those families, what are your strengths? Yes. Right, as opposed to me looking at you from out here and identifying your weaknesses, which we all have, by the way, uh, but having them say, "What are your what are your personal assets? What are the assets of your of your family unit uh, that could be brought to bear against this problem?" Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because it was strict based. But even when I, the very first day I started here, I had a great supervisor. One of her things, one of the things she told me was, "You got to always look for the strengths in a family. We already know what's wrong." And she said, "Sometimes that strength may be that that mother got up that morning, and fed her kids, or she combed her daughter's hair." So you really have to take a deep dive to pull out strengths and not just go into a home and focus on what's wrong because usually we know what's wrong, but we need to spend more energy on trying to figure out what's right. What is this family doing good and acknowledge them and you know focus on that to build upon those strengths and help the family at the same time. Right. Well, because those strengths can overwhelm those weaknesses and 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 in most of our lives do, right? Yes. I mean, they, they uh they make that happen. So that's that's very powerful, Felicia. But uh Ashton, do you have any uh any other follow-ups for uh for Felicia's life story before I before we go uh, on to talk to Brian? I was just going to say how empowering that must have been for the families that um you guys didn't jump to conclusions and and you weren't it wasn't just about looking for their strengths, but also um letting them weigh in on how their case is handled. Um, I think that that, I, I imagine that probably made a huge difference in the number of kids that went into care. Because like you said, in your time doing those things, um, there weren't a lot of cases that you you brought kids into foster care. And I think that that probably made a huge impact on on the outcome there. I agree. It was definitely a way to change the way we do business. Because when I first started here, it was almost if a kid came in a cure, you automatically assumed that this parent had done something wrong. But when we had a team decision-making process, it wasn't to blame a family. It was to say, hey, our families go through different issues and crisis, but how can we help you? How can we work together as a team? And then you also utilize the family, any supports that they brought to the meeting, as well as the other people that were present at that table and you talked about it being a strengths-based meeting and asking everybody to talk about strengths for this family. And we actually use those strengths to develop a plan for the family. And I think if I think you talk to, a big deal. It really is. And well, if you talk to families that are that that have got gotten through crises on their own without government intervention, that's exactly the kind of things they do. They they say, okay, who can who can come help? uh who can who, who who needs to go get treatment uh what kind of things need to happen and so that's that's very that's very uh it's very impactful felicia i think i think instructive for folks especially as we go forward it's like you know what are we what, what are we going to do we're going to try to we're going to try to turn as many people possible into felicia mckinsey <laughs> you know <laughs> we're going to try to get everybody to be doing that because if we you know we get 1800 of those out there we're gonna we're gonna be in a really great spot so thank you for that 
and we'll come back around and talk again about what's going on in your region after we find out how Brian got here. How did you get here, Brian? So I, I guess my story is a little different than you two because uh, I'm not a native of the Kansas City area. So I grew up here in Jefferson City, actually. That's where I spent my childhood. That explains a lot of things now, Brian. Yes, that's right. yes, right. And somehow I ended up back here at least one day a month, I guess. Um, so uh, I, I left. Jefferson City and went to school at uh, CMSU, Central Missouri State University, which is now University of Central Missouri. Even though it's not in Central Missouri. Even though it's on the west Even though it's of the in state. Western Missouri, right? Yes, all things make sense. <laughs> but uh, so I, I got a degree there, a uh, bachelor's degree in criminal justice, and I thought I was going to be a police officer. That's just whatever reason, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I got out of college and there just happened to be a recession taking place and finding a job was really hard. Uh, it was competitive to, to even get in the door for an interview, um, because of just the way the economy was. So I wound up in a position, uh, in a residential facility in Kansas and I never could have pictured myself working in Kansas because. I despise Kansas. <laughs> I, I despise Kansas. As all good Missourians should. Yes, I was, I was, you know, I, I, I was raised to hate Kansas. And so, uh, anyways, I found myself working over there. You didn't root for the Jayhawks, did you? I would never. Okay, I, I just want to make sure. I just want to make no. sure you you were not that no, that, that much of a traitor. I, it's okay. No, uh, I already felt bad enough, you know, paying taxes to that state. So, I, under, I understand. Um, so uh, I was I was in this residential facility, um, essentially helping supervise uh, these children in there, and and I quickly realized that these children were different than what I was expecting. I was expecting more of like a, almost like a jail for juveniles. That these kids are so bad, you know, they're they're this is going to be so hard to even you know, get through a day with these kids. And what I found was, although they had a lot of faults and they had a lot of behavioral issues that they were working through, a lot of them were really just immature kids that every kid is like that. You know, they they liked to play board games and you're like, these kids are in a residential facility because they can't, you know, control their behavior uh, in a normal setting, but they want to sit down and play a board game. They want They want to, they want to have an art session, you know, and so um, I learned that through that work, I learned I did not want to be a police officer because I don't want to deal with adult criminals. I just don't. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, so so I kind of, you know, revisioned what I wanted to do and I knew I wanted to continue to work with kids in some manner. And so. Uh, I was living with two guys that I went to school with at the time in Kansas City, and uh, one of them uh, was uh, dating a girl, and she 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 worked for Children's Division, and so she came over and she said, "Now you have a degree in criminal justice, don't you?" And I said, "Yes." And she said, "Well, you need to come to work for Children's Division." And I said, "Well, what's that?" You know, and so she started explaining it, and she said, "You know, I think we even have openings." for investigators. And I was like, well, that would be cool. And she kind of talked a little bit about it. Um, and here we are, not, those two are married now. So, it you know, out. that it was great. It so anyways, I, I got the interview and I came in and I and, and uh, they gave me an opportunity. So I started out as an investigator in Jackson County. Um, and uh, after that, I became a supervisor in that program and eventually uh, transitioned into our uh, quality improvement specialist position and then became a field support manager and currently regional director and okay. so th this has been i'm working on completing my 15th year here and so um i would say i'm probably the youngest regional director, maybe. I think. I think. Ever. Yes. I think. Maybe. I don't know. We just. Please, had, what do you think? I don't. We had. We, we just. We just had our our executive team meeting. I'm sitting there in the room, and I'm thinking, I think I'm the oldest person in this room. And I look over at Brian. And I know he's the youngest person in this room. <laughs> That's not fair. I used to be you, man. Yeah. That used to be me. So, 
Well, that's all. That's some all really. people think, well, you know, he's too young or whatever, and maybe there's some, you know, stuff about the youth that isn't great for a regional director position. I don't know. But what I know is that we dealt with a lot in Jackson County over the years that I was there. And a lot of what we were dealing with was um, different leadership and how that changed a lot of your uh, positions in your circuit that you're working in. And it can feel real difficult and like, why are people leaving? What should I do? And what I did was just see it. Well, there's an opportunity because if those people are leaving, there's chances for people to promote, you know? Right. And so, um, you know, even, especially when I got the field support manager position, some people were saying, you're really interviewing for that. And I was kind of like, yes, I mean, and I was even confused myself. Like, should I even be in And And I thought, it just be good experience that I just go in there and I can, you know, tell them my beliefs and, and, and my work style and why I want to be in that position. And I got it and I was surprised, but excited. And, and so I don't know. I just, anybody who's, who sees a position and they, they, they think there's any chance that they could do good in that. I mean, Go for it. And what what do you have to lose? Well, absolutely. And you know, Brian, what I've always, what I've noticed about you over the course of, you know, what it's it's almost a year and a half now yeah. that I've been here is I've sensed from you uh, a, a sense of calling uh, to this. It's like I'm I'm supposed to be helping these kids and these families. It's what I do. It's 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 where the stream led me. It's what I'm going to do. And I mean, I. I, I and and when that happens, that there's no time clock. There's no clock on that. Yeah. There's no there's no minimum age for that. And I mean, I had the same kind of experience when I became a judge. I mean, I ran for judge when I was 34 years old, and I got up. And lo and behold, I got elected. I was like the dog that caught the ice cream truck. You know, you taste the ice cream truck, and then all of a sudden you caught it. Like, what do you what do you do with it now? Well, I was the, I was often the youngest guy in the courtroom. Uh, I would be I'd be hearing these cases, and I'm the youngest person there. But the, the, the really, um, the really, uh. Interesting part of that, and I think something that was to a real benefit is that I, I had all kinds of energy, uh, and I, uh, and enthusiasm, uh, but on top of that, you know, I, I had a lot of time to gain experience mm -hmm. and to really, uh, over that time, make a difference. And so that's, that's where I sense you are. I mean, I. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, Brian's, Brian's made a great difference in a lot of ways. First of all, he was, uh, and Felicia too, the same thing. They both had this crisis going on, this, this staffing crisis. They led really well through that. And, and Brian, uh, you know, was one of the first people. He's, he's the guy who said to me uh, at the beginning of this, I, I think it'd be great uh, if for the whole, if you'd have a brand new policy, that for the whole next year, you would have no new policies. Uh, people are still quoting that to me. I mean, people, we were on a division of legal services meeting this week. And so I said, well, you know, I think this is all a response to Daryl's commitment to have no new policies. Well, we, we are now beyond that year. Yeah. We're now allowed to have new policies, but, you know, to get our feet on the ground and figure out where we were. But what that was, Brian, I think was wisdom. I mean, there was wisdom in that because so many things had changed, including who's leading around here. Uh, and, and. I needed to learn what it was people thought they needed. I mean, that was the that was the genesis of the plan was to do some listening first before you know you come in and say we should do A, B, and C. You know, we yeah. you know did some listening first. And one of the people to whom I listened a lot was you. Uh, you've given a lot of great advice, and uh, you were wise beyond your years. So there we are. Well, there we go. There you go. <laughs> so um, one day I'll even be able to grow a beard. That will happen for you someday. <laughs> it might be. It might be. It might be. It'll come in gray by that time. Oh, yeah. It'll sure. look like it'll look like mine. My yeah. beard used to be solidly brown, and I don't know. It just it just didn't. I mean, it, just, it it did happen. So, uh, so so these two lead the metropolitan regions, uh, which you know encompasses a large percentage of our kids, uh, a large percentage of our population that's being served. Uh, and uh, I'm just curious to know, you know, what sort of what's happening in the regions and what is it you that, that you're grappling with, things you're excited about. Uh, so F Felicia, what's what's happening in St. Louis besides the Cardinals losing more baseball games than they should? What, what's, what's happening? We have a lot happening in St. Louis. One of the things would continue to have hiring events or interviews to recruit staff 
we've been reaching out to staff who recently left the agency to see if they want to come back. But we're also trying to make sure that we support the staff that we have to or keep the morale up, let them know that we appreciate the work that they do, because this is not an easy job by any means. So we want to make sure our staff have the tools that they need so that they can work with the family, because if our staff are okay, they're able to then go out in the community and work with families. We are also working on a recruitment of new foster homes because we don't want kids sleeping in the offices. We don't want the workers having to or bring kids to the offices and spend the night. So that's something that we're really working on. We've been having foster parent recruitment events. We've had two so far, but that's really one of our biggest goals because kids deserve an actual home to sleep in. The office is not appropriate. So that's one thing we're working on. We're also working with the community partners, trying to make sure that we're present in the community when we have meetings and they're talking about children's division. We want to be in those meetings and be able to tell our own story, write our own narrative, because sometimes there's a maybe a negative or notion about what's going on, but we're able to go to these meetings, share the work that we're doing with the community partners and also talk about how we can collaborate collaborate and work with the families as well, because we share the same families. And I think one of the things we just had a meeting recently in the community, and we talked about how it's not just children's division responsibility, but it's everybody's responsibility in this room to make sure the children are safe and also to provide resources. So that's some of the good things that we have going on. It's just making sure that we're working with families. Another thing we're doing is uh, trying to really work to prevent kids from coming into care, but also decreasing the amount of kids that are in care, making sure that we are reunifying kids with their families, making sure families have the services they need so that they can be able to take care of their kids appropriately, but also or establishing permanency for kids through guardianship and adoptions as well. That's something that's real big on the radar for us as well, because we don't want kids lingering in the foster care system. All kids deserve a safe, loving home. And I think that's something in St. Louis that not only Children's Division, but other community partners, they have been, you know, willing to partner with us and help us in those areas as well. I think that's that's really important that we know that we're not doing this alone, right? Because yeah. you and, and Felicia, I've been there. We've been to meetings together in yes. places like like at Annie Malone and, yes. and other places where uh, and with the courts where we're saying to the folks who are our partners really in this work saying, hey, we need your help. Uh, we need, uh, you know, we we're, 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 we're changing a direction and, and please come with us. And I think we're finding a lot of a lot of support there in St. Louis. I think that the. Our the folks in the courts are really working with us to try to help us get those cases concluded that need to be concluded uh, to keep case, keep families from becoming cases. Uh, and and I think it's it's really important work and and uh, I appreciate you being you know sort of the face and the voice in that space for us uh, to help move that along. So I've really appreciated it. I've also I've also been visited with the courts in Kansas City, Brian. Sometimes. By specific invitation of the court, right? I mean, I've been, I, I, you know, I got subpoenaed once, and we decided to, to, uh, we decided to actually, you know, have a meeting after I'd been subpoenaed to court. I've told people this is the first time I'd ever been subpoenaed to lunch, but that's what we, that's what we did there in Kansas City. So what's, so what's happening in the Jackson County region? What's happening over there? Well, um, very similar to St. Louis, we went through this real difficult phase where we. You know, we're extremely short staffed and and there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, and this is coming out of the COVID uh, year and, and people were hesitant a little bit to go to work and people were finding a lot of remote work and it was becoming hard to recruit new people. And so uh, every person who would leave the agency had it had twice the impact because it was going to be twice as hard to replace that person and 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 things just got really difficult. Things got difficult for us in um, just to meet our most basic um, work of making sure kids are safe. I mean, and it was hard. Um, yeah, the numbers, the numbers were, you know, people were citing it all the time. It was more than 100% turnover there yeah. in, in Kansas City for a while. And, and that, that was tough. That was a tough place to be. It was. And, uh, 
but there was still good work happening right. within that crisis, which was, it, which is so odd to think that that's even possible. Uh, but that's really actually one of the ways that you can, um, you know, provide some reassurance and, and support in a very difficult situation is find some areas of success and share those with the team. And, and they usually will respond pretty, pretty well to that. And, um, you know, you mentioned opening it up and, and, and letting people know, uh, you know, our partners, they're, they're our partners. They're not, you know, just calling them our partners means they, they're there to help us and support us when we need it. And if you just share with them, this is, this is how bad it is. And this is what we're struggling with. You know, oftentimes they'll find a way to help support you instead of, uh, you know, pointing the finger. And so, um, you know, we did get a lot of help. We got help with making sure that parents were still going to get time to see their kids. Some of our partners uh, stood up visitation uh, locations at churches and stuff like that to help us make sure that those kids would still get to see their parents. Um, and we've had assistance from uh, even our neighboring regions within Children's Division to come help us just at least put patchwork on this thing to get it through until we're in a better place. And thank goodness it feels like we're in a better place now. Our our teams are getting full. So that's, you know, we've weathered the storm and now we got to get out of that crisis mode and get into the, the, the casework mode. I think I think for both of your regions, uh, I think the storm the storm analogy is exactly right. I, uh, you know, my I've got I've got family in Florida. And I watched I watched Hurricane Ian, you know, hit hit and and learned sort of what that experience is like. You got the storm happening, and you know the the high winds and the rains and the trouble and and you get through it. And what you learn is when you've gone through a hurricane is when the hurricane's over, it's not over. Uh, because you've got the aftermath of the hurricane. Everything's knocked over. Uh, power is out for multiple days. This is when human beings are going to misbehave. Uh, this is, you know, this is, uh, you know, where you find yourself in those spaces. Well, you guys are, you guys are both, I think we're in the aftermath. We're, we're uh, continuing to ask for and receive help from the regions for, for different things that are, we're needing to, we're needing to shore back up after all that but i think i think both are in a better place right we don't have the same kind of turnover happening anymore do we brian i mean is it uh so i was just having a conversation with uh someone in our human resources and i um asked that they would give me a comparison of um, july through december and compare that to what i will have from january to the end of june um, and I think it will be very favorable. <laughs> it will tell a it will tell a, a a good story about how some of the changes that we made um, at the beginning of this calendar year have been hugely impactful to getting teams filled. And when teams start getting filled, the turnover goes way down, and people feel like they actually are having uh, time to do meaningful work. They're not just here to work. They're doing meaningful work, which is what everybody came here to do. That's right. Impact lives. That's right. You know, I I uh, get I get uh, exit interviews. I get copies of exit interviews. This time last year, from both of these regions, I would read and read and read because I'd see them and I'd read them because I wouldn't know what's going on. I'd read and read and read all these exit interviews of people who are leaving St. Louis and Kansas City, and you know what I've noticed. I don't get any exit interviews. I'm not seeing them. They're not they're not hitting my email. I imagine there are some people quitting, but I'll tell you what, I don't I don't see the I don't see the uh, impact of that, the evidence of that coming through my email anymore. Like people have people ask me how are things there. I said I don't know. We're going to need to get the numbers, like Brian said. But it appears to me people have stopped quitting. It seems like people are here. They're with us. They they're they're joining and they're staying. And that's that's a great place to be. So that's where we are now. So now the question is, where do we go from here? So, you know, your vision, what do you want to have happen? I mean, you can wave a magic wand and make St. Louis and Kansas City what you want them to be from our perspective. But where, where are we going? Where are we going, Felicia? What's your vision for our work? My vision is for us to be fully staffed as possible as we can, to have resources for our staff 
as well as resources for families. And one of the things that we really want to focus on is just the mental health needs of the youth that we serve to really be able to hone in on that. Because I think a lot of times those are the youth that we have the most challenges with because we have not been able to successfully address their needs because sometimes they're on the run or they're at different placements. So if we can somehow stabilize our older youth and get them on the right track, because some of them are close to being 18 and we want success for them. We want the same success. I want the same success for them as I would want for my own kids. So I think that's the biggest part because we have different ages of kids coming into care, but I think that older population is the most challenging part because well, there's a lot of things going on. There's mental health needs that have not been fully addressed. Those same youth have experienced trauma. So if I can wave a magic wand and change anything, it would be something, some type of services really put in place to help the older youth because that's our future. We really have to figure out something for them so they can have a successful path. Right. And, you know, and including them, yes. including those older youth in those conversations and decisions because they're, it's their life. I mean, when we, when I was a judge, we had some training about older youth and one of the youth stood up and talked to a whole bunch of judges and said, you shouldn't be making any decisions about us without us. And it was interesting. And I remembered it because it rhymes. If it rhymes, you remember it, right? But it, but it was so true. That's correct. We, when we had the TDM process, we actually had an older youth training that the TDM people used to come in and do. And we used to have aging out TDM. So every kid that was in a process of aging out, you had to have that meeting. And it started a year and a half, sometimes two years before that kid aged out. So that really helped us to make sure that we were planning appropriately for those teens and that they had a place to live. We talked about what resources they would have, what networks they could you know, reach out to. So those meetings really help put things in place. And I don't know that that happens all the time now since, you know, it's, it's a little different, but those meetings were really helpful in meeting with those youth. And we would tell them the same as we told the parents, this is your meeting. What do you want? Because you're not going to get by in. If you don't include that team in that decision-making process, it's a waste of time. Well, and when you don't, sometimes what they do is they vote with their feet yeah. and they run. And when that happens now with under the new law, we're going to be required to continue to seek them out, search for them, find them, and we'll never be able to close the case until they're 21. Uh, so it would be really good to talk to them up front, right? And get them exactly. what they need. So you're, you're exactly right, Felicia. I think that's a, that's a wonderful vision. So Brian, what do you, what do you think? What's your, what's your vision, vision for our work from here? Well, I love where we're going already because I'm naturally drawn to uh, prevention work. Um, like I said, I grew up in the investigation team in this agency, and a big portion of that is um, helping families get what they need so they don't need foster care as an intervention. Um, so, you know, that's what I always go to um, when I think about what I would love to see for our agency. Um, I would love to see the whole community come together in that same approach right alongside us. Um, and I think they can, and I think they will. Uh, it's just gonna take a lot of work and take a little bit of time. Um, I also am very, um, very uh, <laughs> a strong supporter of reunification efforts once those kids do um, need foster care. Um, and I want to make sure that we don't have any mindsets within our agency that are, you know, if these kids needed foster care, then there's no way that they should be going back home because that is a mindset that's out there. And, and there will be pockets of that in everybody's team that you got to um, that you got to really address because people come to this work from lots of different backgrounds. That's right. And sometimes your lived experience can help you uh, see things in a different way. It goes back to what. Felicia was talking about that there are strengths when the, within that family. There may be some terrible things happening in that home, but um, but this child's got her hair brushed and she's got clean clothes on, and that's important to that family. And so you got to find those strengths and try to find a way to build on those strengths, um, and let the families be the experts on themselves. 
is oftentimes we come in and try to be the expert and sometimes that just messes the whole thing up. Absolutely. And you know, Brian, that goes to, uh, it, it, it ties in with what Felicia was saying about the older youth and what I've, what I found in, in my time is that, uh, we will have that approach and be thinking the way you're thinking. If we take the time to talk to and listen to these children, I mean, you listen to these kids and you ask them where they want to go. They all want to go home. I mean, the vast majority I can count in, in, in you know, over 30 years of dealing with these kinds of cases as a lawyer and a judge. And now here I can count on 1 hand, the number of kids who did not want to go home. And we say, well, we, that can't possibly happen because you've got this thing and that thing and that thing. Well, the thing is, is that if I try to artificially place, place them in a place, they do not want to be, even if it's better. Uh, in my mind, it's not better in theirs and that's. You know, it's something to keep in mind. It's something I think that you will find uh, encouraging, you know, worrying about those pockets. I went around, I went 46 circuits and did these vision surveys. I read every last one of them. If you all are out there and you wrote a vision survey, I read your vision survey. And uh, the vast majority of people are exactly where you are. I mean, I would read all the time. Could we not have done something to have prevented this child from coming into foster care? Why can't I provide what I need for this family to be able to send this child home? Why cannot these kids go home? And uh, that's that was the vast majority of the people that are out there. Uh, what they're thinking. There's some people think differently, but I don't think they. I don't think either they last long or stay that way that long because they all seen the kids, they all seen the families, and they'll understand. You know that. Wow, creating this giant artificial. Uh, setting for these children, we think will be utopia. We, it just doesn't work that way, does it? No, no. Uh, interesting. We we sometimes have court orders uh, for kids that say um, a traditional foster home with no other children in the home. Oh my! And it's like, well, that would be great, wouldn't it? Where, I say, where, <laughs> where are you going to find that person? Yeah. Some, 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 Do you have any ideas? That's a that's so, a science fiction movie right there. Right? So you know, uh, I think there is still that, you know, in different areas of the system. Maybe not specifically within children's division because we know a little bit more about it, but with different pockets of the system as a whole, there still is that thought that these magical arrangements still exist out there. Well, and that's us educating our our partners, right? That's exactly. us educating educating the community and, and and being willing to speak it and say it. You know, Brian, you you were you participated in uh, you know, some conversations with local media over there in which this was communicated. And, you know, you uh, you expressed in in the Kansas City Star that, you know, the studies tell us that foster care just does not yield great results most of the time. And I think when when people know that, it makes them pause and say, well, maybe that complicated home life is workable and better than this, than this, you know, uh, really caustic and uh, difficult circumstance we put people in when we put place them in foster care with all the side effects that go with it, right? Yeah. So that's, I think it's all very true. So we have now come to the part of the podcast where we ask Ashton to, to ask her final question questions. So Ashton, we're here. And so uh, I open it up to you to ask, ask Felicia and ask uh, Brian, what, what, what else, what else would you like to know? Well, first I did want to comment um, on, on this philosophy that we're talking about, about um, letting the family be the, um, the expert on their family. And the closest thing that I can think of is like trying to put myself in that family's shoes is like, well, currently I have my foot in a boot, you know, I need help a lot and God bless my mother and my mother-in-law. They come over to try to help with the kids, but they don't know how our routine goes. And this is like on a micro scale, right? Like they don't know our kids routines, like our kids and we know our kids routine. And so they come in and it throws everything off and like us being the expert on ourselves, you know, I can't imagine someone who's a complete stranger coming into my home and trying to um, just completely like upset that. I don't know. I just wanted to comment on how um, great I think that is and, and how you're combining that with the strengths that each family has individually to really like 
cater each case is to its own unique solution and its own unique um, way of finding a safe place for these children and, and preventing um, tearing that family apart. So anyway, I digress, but it just well, actually, got let me, me let me let me let, let me interrupt you there because there's wisdom in that, because here's what you've just done. You've taken yourself and you've placed yourself into the shoes of these families that we have out there and saying, if my circumstance, what about my circumstance looks like their circumstance? So I want you to imagine, imagine you don't work for the state of Missouri like you do with all these wonderful benefits and sick days and all this other, and, and that you did not have this wonderful technology that allows you to work from your couch there, which looks very nice, yes, by the exactly. way, and that, <laughs> and that you, and you, and you did not have uh, uh, a supportive husband in your house and you did not have your your mom and mother-in-law nearby and you, you had you had none of that and you stepped on the ball and broke your foot or you know, messed up your foot what mm -hmm. happens to you i mean you 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 couldn't go to work you would lose money you might wind up evicted and guess what your children could wind up in foster care with some different with some with, if there's a different philosophy a different approach and you did not have those supports around you uh, and many people find themselves there. So that's 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 a, the right way to think, Ashton. And uh, it's really uh, it's really awesome that just in just the short time you've been around us, you've picked that up and understand it. And so uh, it's really <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, and like you know, again, micro scale. But like, I just know when I I've had my two children in the past. You know, when I had my babies and I was on maternity leave, those first couple weeks when everybody is trying to come over and be supportive and helpful, I would get so mad because I couldn't find a dish that my mother-in-law put away because she doesn't know where we put our dishes. You know, it's something right. so small like that, but it like that's a micro scale of the big things that we could be changing in these kids' lives if we're not focusing on how how we can keep them together. So anyway, just like in my head, those are my thoughts. But I, so I just really appreciate what you guys are doing um, and the philosophies you're building and, and the culture that you're you're building here at CD. Uh, so my question is, if uh, so, when you think back on your career, so you know, Brian, you said you're working on your 15th year. Felicia, you're talking about 24 years here. In this time that you have been working for CD, is there a moment or a case that stands out to you that um, that keeps you going, that, that reminds you of why you do this work? And maybe it's not something that you've experienced in your career. Maybe it's something that happened when you were younger or... I don't know anything in your life that makes you keep wanting to come back and do this work that you're doing. Felicia, I guess that's directed at you first. <laughs> well, let me see. 24 years. Yes. You gotta have a story. <laughs> yeah. now, if you, if you would have quit it too, it would be different, but uh, you know, you've got a nearly a quarter century here. Right? I actually enjoy the work that I do. Every position that I have had, I often tell people I have never woke up in the morning and said to myself, I don't want to go to work. And I think it's due to the uh, my coworkers, my supervisors, just the atmosphere. It's a helping profession and we all help one another. One of the cases though that I had, I think, you know, it helped me to stay here, but it kind of helped guide my practice. It was many years ago. I think I was probably, and no, I was actually an AC worker, but I was asked to go out and just see a family to do a, an assessment because I was going to well, help the mom with housing. So I took her a housing packet out to her home. Well, she was actually staying with a friend, but when I went out there to, to complete the housing packet with her, we kind of had a small conversation Then I gave it to her. Then I noticed maybe minutes had passed by and she was just looking at it. And I said, well, can I help you with anything? And she told me she couldn't read. And then I thought about, she had three kids that had been in foster care for quite some time. And she had been having court hearings. And it just really made me think about how sometimes we just shove papers in people's faces 
and we don't explain anything. And just because they're looking at it, we assume that they're reading this information because the same thing had been happening at court. Nobody, nothing was in the case file that she didn't know how to read. When I talked with the DJO, she didn't know either. So I'm like, how are we planning for this family? We had actually did a disservice to her, but that kind of changed the way I did things. I always explained the stuff, even if I knew they could read, I still explained to them, you know, what was going on because she ended up losing all of her kids, but thankfully they went to guardianship with them or their maternal grandmother. But I think things like that also kept me alone, kept me here because I know that families do need help and we can't change the world, but sometimes the small things we do can help families along the way. So I think that's one of the things that in many other cases where I had the opportunity to really work with families, engage families and make sure the kids were safe. So those are the things that kept me coming back each day. It was, you know, a good place to work at, but I was also able to help families, even if it was something small, I was able to do my best to help that family. So Felicia, in that, in that story, that's a wonderful, amazing story, really, because it just points out uh, how concerned we need to be and how mindful we need to be of where, we're, where people are. Did that woman have a lawyer helping her through any of that? Was anybody ever reading her these documents? Nobody was reading her any documents. Her oldest son had been basically warehoused at a residential center. And the worker who I received the case from was on her way out the door. And so I had no notes outside of pieces of notepads. So I had to just recreate everything from the beginning from talking with everyone. So she hadn't really had any services. She may have had an attorney but nobody was advocating for her. It, it was kind of too late in the game when if, uh, people if, started realizing. I, I, I am a lawyer, and I think as a lawyer, if I knew my client was illiterate, uh, then I would be jumping up and down, talking about all the things my client needs, all the supports my client needs, beyond what normally a court has. And I had a similar experience with somebody when I was a guardian ad litem that we found out late in the case because I discovered it that, you know, she wasn't developmentally disabled like they thought. What she really was was deaf. Well, you know, you got to do some exploring and ask some questions and find out where people are. And so as I went forward in my work, I always had a rule. I always, as I was dealing with 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 uh, litigants and and with uh, parents and with people in in all of these spaces, I would ask myself, I called it the Leroy rule because my dad's name was Leroy. And I asked myself the question, what would Leroy's response to this be? Because my dad was a great guy, very wise, best character of any people you'd ever meet in your whole life. But he had trouble reading because he was dyslexic. I mean, you could tell when he would write things. He could not read fluently. He was, except for he had memorized the baseball rule book. Yeah, because we he and I umpired together. He could tell you what section, what that, you know, so he's very, very, and, and he was a machinist. So he knew all this geometry and he was very smart, but he had that struggle. And so when people would throw these forms, these multi-page forms with all of this legal language in it at these people, I'd ask myself the question, what would Leroy's response to this be? Would Leroy understand this? And the answers, often no and so you know we got to ask the question can this person understand what we're doing and you're putting again just like ashton's you know thought earlier you're putting yourself in the shoe shoes of that woman and saying what what well, how could you help her what could you do for her and and then you and then you looked at all your future people as if they she they were her right you learn from that that's yes. really that's really awesome so i think in addition to that this work and and uh, all the things that go into decisions around child safety is so difficult and it's always gray. It's not black and white. So it takes a long time to even prepare the staff that work for our agency to train them, to uh, get them some field practice and really have them practice their skills before they even know what we're supposed to be doing. But we still will show up to a family's door, hand them a couple pieces of paper and expect them to know what we what we expect them to do as a parent. And when they make a choice that is different than what we wanted, we get so upset about it. But, you know, 
this is complicated. And it's even more complicated when you bring things like dyslexia and literacy and stuff like that into the equation. I mean, we never know what somebody might be dealing with. Well, and imagine how emotionally impactful it is when you show up with those pieces of paper, Brian. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've shown up and it's like, okay, read and understand these two, these two pieces of paper. Uh, and I just freaked you out because I'm from the state talking to you about your children. I mean, wow. I mean, before I read these two pieces of paper, before I interview your children about the abuse that they suffered, right? You know, like, and I mean, at your hand, perhaps, yes, or or at least accused right. of at your hand. So, I mean, it is, uh, uh, it's definitely a unique situation uh, to to this type of work. But um, you know, I think taking the time to to make sure that we're doing things the right way and with the right intent, I think, is the is the key. That is very that is that is very true. So Ashton, it's the same question for Brian, right? You want to restate it for him so that he can so that he can uh give us his wisdom and thoughts. I can, I can. So um is there a moment or a time in, in the 15 years that you've served the department, or maybe even before that, that you think about um as maybe like felicia said transformative in your experience in the way that you do practice is there something that keeps you motivated to come back and do what you do every day what what's your why basically so um i'm going to answer this in a little different way but um i recall a time when i was a supervisor um over investigations and uh one of the the ladies that I was supervising, she was talking to me about this case and giving me all the reasons that this child needed to be placed in foster care. Things weren't great in the home. I'll I'll, I'll give her that, but um, it didn't seem like this was to the level that the kids were unsafe. It, there was a lot of stuff going on, but I think the family had just frustrated her over time because she had just been trying to work with them for so long, and she had just had it and and. The comment that she said to me that stuck there, and you know, this is like 10 years ago. She said, this kid might be better off in foster care. At least they would get some nice Christmas presents. And I thought, wow. and I don't know that she really intended it in that way, or if that was just the comment that was on her mind, but I thought, how could somebody think this would be a good choice because we want them to have some Christmas presents. Um, and so that has always stuck with me that, you know, there's a lot of pressure coming at us from a lot of different places to make certain decisions for kids and families. And if we fall victim to that, we are really doing it at the detriment of our kids. And so uh, that sticks with me. And I thought, you know, well, it would have been great to have a whole bunch of better Christmas gifts when I was a kid, but I wouldn't have taken that as an exchange for being ripped away from my family. I mean, that, that, it, so that, that moment stuck with me. But then on the other side of that, probably about a month ago, um, I was walking out to the parking lot because I just needed to get out of my office and just take a little stroll. So I was walking through the parking lot and there's some construction going on. So I was kind of, peeking in to see what progress they they were making on our parking garage. Um, not a lot, by the way. Uh, but um, there was a lady out there and she, she walked up to me and I could tell she was either having a mental health episode or she was, you know, under the influence of some drugs. And, and she was asking, can I borrow your phone? Do you have a phone I, I could use? And I said, well, you know, all I have is my state phone, but I think I could, let you use our phone inside. And she's, you know, she was very, no, no, I'm not going to go inside and all that. They're, they're trying to make me go in there. And, and so I was trying to figure out what was going on. And I could see there was a, a an older gentleman that kind of waved me on like, oh, just, just move on. And I could tell they were, they were both there together. And, and so I, I asked him, I said, is there something going on here? And he said, we're here for a meeting with children's division. And I thought, oh, wow isn't this ironic that I'm out here walking around in the parking lot? So um, she, she really didn't want to come in. She thought something bad is going to happen to me if I get in that door. 
And so I just talked to her. For, I mean, this took a lot of coaxing and, and what made it worse is the worker that was working with this family, her name is Anita, but she goes by Lynn. And I used the wrong name with her. So that even made her more alert. Like, well, I thought her name was Anita. That and I'm like, well, that is her. That is her legal name, but she goes by Lynn. No, that's not even the same person. You're tricking me. You know, so there was a lot going on here. So anyways, finally, I coaxed her in the door and I go to get Lynn and 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 Lynn's speaking with the family. And, and you know, she looks like she's got everything under control. So I you know, go back to my office and I come out like an hour later and, you know, just to fill up my water cup and they are still there talking. And I thought, wow, I know Lynn has just cases piling up and she's still talking to this lady an hour later. What she was trying to do is help get her into a treatment facility. She needed detox and she needed treatment. Right. And Lynn is just doing everything she can to convince her to just accept that and and we we have a ride set up for you. We're ready to get you there. And she had negotiated that top up previously with this mom, uh, a, a mom to a very young child. And 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 so that told me, okay, for every bad moment that I can recall that somebody made a comment about maybe they'll have better Christmas gifts in 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 foster care. I've got this person sitting here that's really working, covering every possible avenue to make sure that not not maybe that the kid doesn't end up in foster care. I don't know if that kid ended up in foster care. It's possible. Uh, but did we give her the best opportunity to keep her kid from needing that as the intervention? Right. And if we if we gave the best opportunity and the decisions didn't turn out to be the right ones and ultimately Foster care is necessary. We know at least we did that. Well, we did what, it the right way. Right. That's what reasonable efforts are. Yes. Right. That's I mean, the way it was meant I mean, to be. I mean, that 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 hour that hour in that office was beyond reasonable efforts. It should be take hour long conversation yeah. with mom about treatment. You know, should be should be in the list of things yeah. that you've done that were reasonable efforts. And I think another thing that I thought of Brian as you were talking was a question of what do we value. You know, what do we value when you're talking about what is it the Christmas presents? Yeah. Is it the nice house? Is it the nice bed or is it the relationship? And I think, you know, it all I think it does all come back to that relationship piece. I mean, you, you talk about, you know, children and Christmases and all that sort of thing. I think back to my family and my my mom who, you know, struggled with mental illness. Yeah. Uh, you know, she was she she could only work part time and her real reason for working was to try to get us some stuff for Christmas. And we never had what the guys down the street had for Christmas. Uh, but I would not have traded my house for Jimmy's house. I would not have. Uh, Jimmy had better stuff. Uh, but uh, but his family was his family and my family was mine. And I wouldn't I would not trade it uh, for all the Christmas presents in the world. And, you know, the kids feel that way. You know, they do. So that's all. Uh, that's all very, very powerful. So so. Ashton, do you have anything else do you think that we uh, that we should talk about with Felicia and Brian here today on this particular podcast? It may not be there. I just wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to say, like, it is it is really cool to hear you guys talk about how passionate you are about this work. Um, having leaders who want to make a difference. Um, in any way they can in the families of, of Missouri and, and not just thinking about, okay, what's the best for the the children, but what's the best for the family, I think is a really cool um, thing to have here. And it's, it's maybe not unique to children's division, but your passion and um, dedication and years of service are definitely a testament to uh, you're wanting your your passion or sorry, you're wanting to make a difference. So um, I just think that's really cool. And I think both of your stories of your wise really support that. That's all I've got, Daryl. Well, thank you, Ashton. I, I would I would echo that uh, and thank uh, thank Felicia and Brian for uh, being here today, uh, but also for their service, for the important things they've done. Uh, for the storm that they've weathered and for the aftermath that they're working through. Uh, it's it's really been an inspirational, really, to watch these two 
uh, really, uh, I think, lead with a steady hand and and uh, and good hearts uh, to to really help our our kids and our families. And uh, I'm glad that they're a part of the team. And and and, and these conversations, Ashton, are part of the reason why I'm I'm thrilled we're doing these podcasts because I think our folks in the field need to know. This is the quality of people we have we have doing this work and the, the nature of the leadership they have is really inspirational uh, to me. Every time I gather with this group, I, I feel like I'm uh, I feel like I'm meeting with the all star team, as it were, and that they're uh, that they're really going to uh, not just not just do uh, continue to, to lead us in good work right now, but going forward into the future. Uh, it's very bright. And so I'm very excited about it. And I think uh, I thank everyone, Ash and I, as always, I thank you for helping us through the podcast today, even from your your uh, position of convalescence there uh, at home through the WebEx. And uh, I, thanks again. Thanks again, uh, Felicia and Brian, for, for uh, being great colleagues and for being here today and being part of this with us. So with that, I want to thank all of you for listening to to uh, this week's podcast and uh, we'll be back with more. Thank you all. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Listen to more episodes of this podcast or our newest podcast, The Call to Foster, wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help us reach and inspire more Missourians. Thanks for listening.